I know what it is like to be so burdened by your own battles in your own mind to literally not be able to function. And I always say that that battle and overcoming that was way harder than getting blown up and losing my legs. For my own story, having like injuries and, and scars, and we, we, we hide these things. And whether it be emotional or physical, you know, the scars in our life actually are the things that make us the resilient people we are. And so we should celebrate them. Okay, prepare yourself for what is definitely one of the most amazing conversations that I have ever had. You might want to take notes during this episode. I felt like I did whilst Giles spoke these words to me. I just wanted to remember every word that left his mouth. My guest this week is Giles Dooley, who describes himself as an anti-war photographer, documenting humanity, love and connection in conflict zones all over the world. After years of working as a photographer in fashion and in music, he realised that he was not fulfilled in his purpose as a photographer and set up Legacy of War, a photo project to connect people experiencing the impact of war. Very soon after, Giles stood on a landmine whilst photographing soldiers in Afghanistan, losing both his legs and his left arm. Giles's own body became part of the story that he had set out to tell, the impact of war on innocent people. In this episode, Giles shares lots of incredible stories of the people that he has met along the way and the impact that they've had on his life. Listen out for Olive in Rwanda, Khaloud in Lebanon, Dawood in Mosul and more. Legacy of War has gone on to become a charitable foundation, which now not only shares people's stories, but changes the direction of them for the better through various projects, including their Land for Women project, which Giles will tell you more about. I'm so excited to hear your thoughts on this episode and I hope that this is the first of more that we record together because Giles has so many important stories and so much wisdom to share. You're listening to the Worldwide Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people working on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. to visit Giles at his apartment he insisted on making me lunch turns out he's pretty incredible in the kitchen and has another Instagram account called One Armed Chef anyway as soon as I got there we got straight into some really interesting topics of conversation so I set up my microphones and just started recording what he was sharing without any introduction the thing that I'm learning and still trying to learn about in storytelling is I realized that for a long time I missed the important part because I went there with my own unconscious bias and that was to photograph people that had suffered in a very serious way. I thought I was doing the right thing, but it was almost this kind of reverential photography of, of you know, women in Angola that have, have suffered sexual violence and, and survived the war. And I was taking these very serious photographs of them because I thought that's how I should respect them and tell their stories. And as things have gone on, and I suppose also having my own injuries and, and experience, I now see that actually what I normally find in those situations is laughter, is joy, is people kind of making the best of life. And that's what I should be reflecting. And there was a story I did recently in women from Congo who had escaped into Angola, and they'd gone through terrible stories. But when I kind of got to know them, I also found that they were making like homebrew alcohol. So they invited me to come and join them for a party, you know, one night. They're like, we'll get rid of all the men, only you. The only thing I had to bring was like some batteries from the radio. And we had such a fun night it was so full of joy and laughter and when I said to them why did you invite me you know why why did you feel comfortable with me being here and they were like well we saw in your eyes the suffering but we also saw the joy in your heart and that for me is what resilience is I mean resilience is a word I hate 
Because I would say anybody that I meet is, who's resilient, it's a quality none of us should ever discover because it means you've suffered. And the greater the resilience, the more you're suffering. And whether that be because you've had illness like cancer or an injury like me or because of years of living in war or living in a refugee camp, resilience is nature's reward for that suffering. But it's also a bittersweet thing because, as I say, if you meet somebody who's really resilient, you know they've had some terrible suffering. But at the same time, I find the company of people who are resilient, who have gone through things, where I feel most at home, and the joy and the understanding of life is, is the greatest. Do you think that since your own injuries, it has changed the way that you work and the way that you connect with people then? It's an interesting one because I was working in Afghanistan when I got injured and I was there because of my work and I think my work was all about connecting with people and empathy. I didn't work for newspapers or magazines. I was there as an activist. Mm. I would say I'm not really a photographer. I'm just an angry man with a camera. You know, and I set out to do the work I do because I was really uncomfortable about what I saw in the world. And I wanted to do something about that in, in revealing those stories and talking more about them. So I would always say that I felt I had a good connection with people and, and, and empathy, and that's why I got injured. But it changed things afterwards, definitely. The, the, the biggest moral question that I always dealt with was I would photograph, you know, a, a child in South Sudan has just been shot. And I take a photograph and you think, well, I'm there because it's an important story and the world needs to see this. But then I get on a plane and leave and go home. There was always this sense of, of guilt, feeling like a vulture to do that. You know, you know you're there for the right reasons, but, but morally it, it goes against every instinct you have as a, as a human. So when I got injured in Afghanistan, that obviously changed things. I mean, I was in brief, I was injured by a landmine. I was out on patrol with some American soldiers who I was documenting. I lost both my legs and my arm, which is the, the physical impact of that i used to say i literally walked in the footsteps of the people that i photographed you know i've been photographing people injured by landmines i got injured by a landmine so of course it changed my understanding of it although i'd also <laughs> i remember like a, a i was doing a talk in parliament and a, a and an mp said did my opinion of landmines change a lot after stepping one i was like well because you liked them before well i was like, <laughs> like no i kind of always guessed that they were quite bad yeah I didn't realise quite how painful they were, but generally I didn't like them before and I don't <laughs> yeah. like them since. That's a wild question. <laughs> so I get asked this, do I connect with people now because of my injuries when I travel? And to a certain extent, yes. But actually I realised it's something different because actually the majority of the work I do is with women and with women who don't necessarily have physical injuries but have mental scars. And I realised actually... People don't really care that much about my injuries. They're always kind of slightly fascinated. It's always funny because normally I, I kind of meet a family and, you know, they'll say, oh you, oh, you lost his arm in war. It's very bad. And then I'll say, oh, I lost my legs as well. And they'll start crying and going like, oh, my God. But what it is that connects me with the people I photograph is not the injuries. I spent then a year in hospital. I had 37 operations. I spent 46 days in intensive care. It was pushing everything to the limit. Of, of endurance of what I had, of suffering. You know, there were, there were points in my life. I remember seven months after I got injured, I was still in hospital. And every day they would take my bloods. Every day I was having operations. I was hooked up to machines that provided, you know, where I went to the toilet to help me breathe at times. I had no control of my own body. It was, it was poked and prodded by everybody. I, I felt completely powerless. That year was really, really tough. And that's what I connect with people on. It's not, it's not my injuries, the physical injuries, but people see that they understand what suffering is and I understand what hardship is. And that's where I connect with people. And that's, that's the gift that I was given back by going through something so terrible, the gift of connecting with people that have suffered. I'm so interested in this idea through the years of working in this space too that actually suffering in this way as you say is a gift in that in experiencing suffering like that you also recognize the joy and beauty in life more absolutely your your whole value system changes and again I think that's that's what also connects me with the people that I, I photograph is 
you know, we can be in, 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 in very humble situations. Obviously, people living in refugee camps or in, in war zones, you know, don't have much. But it takes very little to create joy and laughter and, and stories and, and all those things. I spent, say, like a, a year in hospital. And I remember coming out of hospital and going to my sister's house and sitting in the garden. And, you know, the reality is through most of that year, nobody knew if I'd make it still. You know, there was a lot of times when I was, really should have died. And I never knew if I'd even see the world again. And then sitting in my sister's and having a glass of wine, some friends there, my nephews running around, some great food, and all those things, it was like they were turned up on, on the amplifier. And they were all so amazing. And ever since then, I've been very grateful for everything in life. And it sounds funny, but even the bad things that happen, I find joy in. You know, like breaking up with someone, it's a horrible feeling. Your heart feels broken and your stomach is knotted. But even then I'm like, but I can feel this. That means I'm alive. It's something inside me that is experience. And of course it's still sad, but there's a certain pleasure I get out of, of feeling because when you go through a year where literally you have no sense of anything, there is no input in your life, you know, tastes, no sounds, no joy. Everything becomes wonderful. I got stuck in a, in a traffic jam a, a few months ago. It was raining. It was miserable in London. And it was the worst traffic jam. It's like one of those ones where it's not moving at all. We sat there for half an hour. And the taxi driver, he looks at me and he goes like, mate, you seem really calm. He goes, I've never seen anyone so chilled in a traffic jam. And I said, but look, it's like I'm looking at the rain. I'm looking at people walking by. It doesn't matter if I'm late. What does any of that matter? It doesn't. I'm alive. And I have choice in my life. And I can do things that I want to do and, and think how I want to think. And that is, is, again, a lesson that I was given and that I share with a lot of people that I document is the smallest pleasures, the smallest moments of experience of life become huge, huge treasures. And so I definitely value everything much more. And then a lot of the, the trivial things in life just really don't mean anything to me. Let's go back for a minute to the day that you stood on that landmine. I will never forget, it was actually years ago when I first saw the footage of the medics mm. who came to pick you up in the helicopter yeah. that day in February mm -hmm. 2011 in Afghanistan. And it's just etched in my memory that... It was so unbelievable how you spoke to them. And when they asked you, what's your name? You just calmly said Giles. And then you asked them, am I going to live? And then you said, thank you, when they dropped you <laughs> off at the, at the, the hospital. Yeah. And it just, it just blew my mind, really. You know, it's funny that because um, they didn't know who, who I was, these American soldiers. And, and afterwards, they, they did get in contact and said, who the fuck says thank you? Like, you just <laughs> so get your legs British. blown on your... But I, I said, well, actually, it's like my mum, who unfortunately is no longer around but she would have been incredibly proud of me because she always said two things it's like always have clean underwear because you never know what's going to happen and well, always say please and thank you so that day I had clean underwear on and I said my pleases and thank you so she would have been proud of me so I think that's my my mother's upbringing it's another of the many moments that, that are life-changing I don't mean life-changing in terms of the physical injury but that moment of being so close to to death you know, it was a 25-minute helicopter journey from when I was picked up to Kandahar military base, the hospital there. And, you know, I really assumed that those were going to be the last moments of, of my life. I, I'd accepted that they were going to be the last moments of my life, um, which I think gave me a, a calmness. I've always heard about people having flashbacks about life when they're dying. And I had the opposite. I had flash-forwards. And I started about thinking about the things that I still wanted to do, I, the work I still wanted to do on a humanitarian sector. And I just started the Legacy of War project. I was like frustrated because that was something I thought was important. Thought about maybe having kids one day, all those things that I still dreamt of doing and the impact I still wanted to have. And, and that's what I was thinking about, not flashback, but flash forwards. It's, it's really fascinating to be that close to, you know, being very aware at the end of your life. It means that when you have a second chance at life, which is how I feel I have, the, the the value of what those things are because I had a little insight into what many of us or all of us obviously will have to face at some point which is the end of our life the regrets the questions the thoughts of, of what you've done in your life what means something to you all those things that you thought are important you realize are not important I know what it feels like to be dying and have those last moments of your life and 
all the thoughts that go in your mind about what means stuff to you and the people that you love. And trust me, the last thing was like my bank balance or what I own. And that was another gift. It's like to, to know how it will feel. I've had a dress rehearsal of how I will feel when it comes to the end of my life. And I have the opportunity to put a th few things right that maybe I wouldn't have if I died that day. It's amazing. So do you think that you had that moment of realizing that you were so close to the end of your life and then actually the mindset of like but no I'm not going to accept that because yeah. I remember also reading that you said that you took a stock take of your body and that you still had the arm that you needed to take photographs and that that was still in your mind in that moment you know actually the most remarkable part about that is so um three days I was stabilized in Afghanistan they've flown back to the UK mm -hmm. to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham and my family came up there they were told I probably wasn't going to make it because of the internal injuries, my lungs were damaged, you know, I had I, bits of shrapnel inside me, the infections. They said normally what happens is uh, it's three or four days after a bomb blast like that is when people die. They had basically warned them that, that probably is the reality. So I was taken from the, 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 um, the airport where I was landed, straight in an ambulance. I'm in an induced coma at this stage and taken straight into surgery. But they wheeled me past my family, my, my sister and brother and my dad and my sister said he's trying to say something and they were like no he's 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 unconscious you know so many drugs in him and i said my sister was like smiling going no you don't know my brother it's like <laughs> he has quite a kind of he has like the resilience of a of an ox I, I i think he's trying to say something now i don't remember any of this because i was unconscious but there was a, the, the 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 subconscious part of my brain i guess was still busy so they took the mask off and my sister knelt over and I'm sure she thought I was going to say, I feel, I feel sorry for my sister. She's gone through a lot because of me. I'm sure she thought I was going to say, I love you or I'm sorry or something. The only <laughs> words that came from my unconscious mind at that point were, I am still a photographer. I think my sister almost slapped me at that stage. It's like, really? Are you joking? Yeah. But that is everything to me because at 18, when I got given a camera, this dyslexic stupid boy suddenly had a voice somebody that had disliked himself for his whole life suddenly felt maybe I had something relevant and important to do for the first time I felt I connected with the world when I got given that camera and so when I said those words I am still a photographer it was saying really I am still alive I can still talk I still have something important to give and I'm still relevant. Photography is not something I, I do because I enjoy it or it's fun or it's a hobby or it's my job. It is my way of connecting with the world. It's my voice. It's my everything. And so, you know, when I talk about photography, it, it comes from a place of, of anger about war, about frustrations, about conflict, about wanting to help refugees and help all sorts of different communities and the camera is my keystone in being able to do that a lot of people in the world are dealing with lockdown at the moment and lockdown is a very difficult time a lot of that is because of anxiety about what's what's going to happen next being isolated from friends not being able to do the things that we want to be able to do and that's something that we share with actually the way that most people have to live in in refugee camps have to live in conflict areas because most people in life have no choice. Choice is the most important thing that we have in life that we take for granted and don't even realize is a privilege. We have choice, even if it's a bad choice, like leaving, leaving a partner, changing a job, something that is quite difficult to do, it's a choice. Most people have no choice in their life. You know, you're sat in a camp, you can't choose, oh, I want to go back to school. I want to move back to my parents. I want to do... You cannot make any choice. And when you take choice away from people, you take away their dignity. So I spent 46 days in intensive care. I always call it the ultimate lockdown because there was a point where I had a tube that was, was in my throat, so I couldn't speak. Um, literally, like, a you know, you can see the scars still there. So that was in there. So I couldn't speak. Um, obviously, I'd lost one of my arms. My other arm was in a cast because it was smashed to pieces, so I couldn't write or move anything like that. So that was strapped down. So the only way I could communicate with the world was blinking. So my universe was in my head. I was in an intensive care unit, which means you can't have visitors. 
The lights never go off. You have one nurse per patient because intensive care literally means they're trying to keep you alive. So they're constantly monitoring you, constantly changing the medications, injecting you with, with different things to keep you alive. But imagine you're in that situation. You're strapped to a bed. You can't move. You're staring at the same bit of ceiling. You don't know what time of day it is because there's no windows. There's no clocks. You have no idea. You just keep coming in and out of this consciousness. But you can only blink. At first, the first few days of it, it felt like being thrown in the sea, a freezing cold ocean, where all my breath was taken and I'm in a panic and I'm jumping around and I'm struggling to breathe. I'm gasping for air. And then I realized that this was going to go on for a while and I needed to find some, some way of controlling my space, the space that I had. My universe was literally my imagination. That's everything I had. So I, I started to do things like I had no idea of time, but I knew that the nurses came to me on regular intervals. So there was always a pattern to that. So I thought that's my unit of time. It's a unit which is in between when the nurses take my, my readings and blood. And then I would set myself exercises to do in that. Like one of them was 100 portraits before I die, which is my favorite exercise, where I imagined the 100 people I wished I'd done portraits of. And then I imagined doing those portraits. And I imagined them coming, everything. It wasn't, it wasn't just imagining, it was visualizing it. So I'd meet them, we'd have a coffee together, we'd chat about the shoot, I'd imagine the lighting, you know, I'd set it up, I'd take the portrait, I'd look at the end result. And I even would critique myself. And then the next one, I'd be like, oh, actually, I'm going to do something different this time. I'm going to use a different camera. And, and I actually became a better photographer. My work changed dramatically through 46 days of being unconscious because I was working away in my head. That was a period that is, is so hard to explain to somebody because you think you're going to die. You probably are going to die. You'll be people running around trying to save your life. I had two occasions when my family came in to say goodbye and I could only blink at them. So to have my sister, my brother, my dad sort of saying their, their farewells, really, because they've been told I wasn't going to make it through the next stage. And all you can do is blink. It's, it's almost impossible to explain that. And that's the suffering. But that is what made me who I am today. I would certainly not say I'm grateful for it. You know, I would like to expunge that from my memory. I'd like never to have gone through that again. But it's made me a far better man, a better photographer, and I think a better humanitarian in what I try and do with the world. That, that suffering is where my resilience was forged. And that's the experience that I share with the people that I photograph. What a story. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody said to me, do you suffer trauma going back to conflict areas? And the first place I went back to 18, 18 months after I got injured was Afghanistan. And I went back to carry on my work there. And actually, you know, it's funny, I'm not a particularly brave person. So I was always scared going to those places. So that really didn't change. I'm, I'm still scared to go back to those places. I find it quite difficult and challenging. But I wasn't particularly traumatized because of my injuries. But the last couple of months, I've been documenting intensive care units in London. And that was my trauma. So going back into an intensive care unit and seeing people hooked up to machines like I was, that's been a really tough thing for me. Like I've had a lot of, of, of nightmares from that, a lot of things I've had to think about and, and redress because, you know, that is, it's a horrible experience for anybody to go through. Um, there, was, there was a moment when I was in hospital where my kidneys had stopped, my lungs weren't working, various other parts had, had stopped working. So they had said to my brother, like, look, we don't know really what sort of state he's going to be in if he makes it through this. You know, is your brother the kind of person that would want to live connected to a dialysis machine, stuck in hospital for the rest of his life? Pretty much the question was, do you want us to keep giving him care? And my brother's reply, he just said, as long as my brother's fighting, we'll fight for him. And luckily they did. And I found myself walking around intensive care with these, these poor patients with COVID. And I was doing the rounds with, with the doctor, but I would stay slightly behind. And in my mind, I was saying to each one of them, like, just keep fighting, never give up. That is as well what, what I do believe. It's like, you know, for all of us. And it's what I say to the people that I photograph, never give up, always keep fighting. A lot of my work in the last... 10 years has been in the refugee camps in Lebanon and I've been documenting children there who were four or five years old when I met them who are now 14 15 years old and the trauma that they've been through I mean there's this amazing girl called Huala 
Ohala, when I met her, was she would have been about seven years old, six, seven years old. She had just got out of hospital because she took rat poison to try and kill herself in the camp because her mother was bringing up the kids on her own, was really struggling, and she knew her mother was struggling. She'd heard these conversations. So in her mindset, she's incredibly bright and and um, intuitive. But unfortunately, that meant that what she did was she thought if she killed herself, it would make life easier for her mother. So she t- took rat poison and luckily survived. And ironically, was then in hospital, which meant her mother was in further debt because the hospital is not paid for. It was interesting. I photographed her then, but I refused to interview her because I said, you're too young. How old was she? She was about seven, eight then. And so I took a photograph, a beautiful photograph of her with the sunlight behind her. But my, my foundation, we were able to, to get her and her family housed somewhere and her schooling. And so last year was her 16th birthday. And I went over to take her out for the day on her 16th birthday. And finally, we did an interview because, you know, it felt that it was, was old enough. Yeah, she was old enough. And it was really powerful to learn about. Yeah, she'd seen her schoolmates blown up in, in Syria, die in front of her, all these different traumas, her, the loss of her dad, all these things that had eventually made make that choice of, of rat poison. And she had to leave school to work in, in um, olive trees, picking olives because there was no money. Luckily now, as I say, she's in school and she wants to be a doctor and we're trying to help her with that. But that's like one story. And there's 1.5 million refugees living in, in, in Lebanon alone. And each one of those kids has got this kind of trauma. And there's very little being done. You know, this is a one-on-one case where I happen to know Harla. We've, we've, we've been able to support her and her family. But it, it makes me think every time I'm walking through the camps there, every, every child I see, these 18-year-old kids, you know, they, that's all they've known is this trauma. It's all held inside. And so I think, again, you know, having gone through some of those experiences myself, it's something that I can relate to and understand. But I get overwhelmed sometimes by the, the internal pain of people around the world caused by conflict. Mental issues and, 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 and depression is far harder battle than the physical battle of even a really dramatic injury like mine. And I think people should always remember that. And it's one of the things that I'm very keen to support in, in conflict areas I work with, is those, those scars of, of conflict uh, mentally go on for years. It was best described to me by a, a man in Cambodia who put it so eloquently, a man that would never even know what PTSD means. You know, he lived in a very rural area. He's never seen a psychologist. He would never see a psychologist. You know, he doesn't have the luxury of dealing with his mental health issues because he works every day just to feed his family. But I t- talked to him, and he, he'd, he'd suffered badly during the years of the Khmer Rouge and had been tortured, and, and terrible things had happened to him. And I said to him, you know, do you have... And, and being a stupid Westerner was kind of referring it to it in, in Western terms about, do you have psychological trauma? Do you have this? And he kind of looked at me like, what are you talking about? But as I was leaving, he, he said to me, he called me over and he goes, you know, I've been thinking about what you said. And he says, maybe. He goes, because sometimes when I'm happy, I have dreams about my past nightmares. And that, to me, was the most eloquent way of describing what psychological trauma and these things are. That there's something there that even when you're happy, you have a dream about your past nightmare. The resilience I built through dealing with depression meant that I was able to deal with my injuries. But it's something that I really feel needs to be done much, much more with people who have suffered from conflict, from um, refugee crisis, all, the, all these different things, because it's a hidden, it's a hidden story that we don't talk about enough. We see people's physical injuries and we know how to deal with that. When it comes to psychological, we're not so sure. There's a woman called Olive who I'm working with on a project called Land for Women in Rwanda. Her story was an incredible story. She was uh, a mother of two kids and had just gone into hospital to give birth to her third child on the day that uh, the genocide in Rwanda started. So literally, as she was going through birth, of this third child, her village was attacked and her two children were killed, her husband, her parents, everybody she knew was killed in the moment of her giving birth to a new life. She was obviously only saved because she wasn't in the village, she was at the hospital. Then the hospital was surrounded by militias. Uh, she was dragged out. She left her baby behind because she thought it wouldn't be identified as Tutsi or Hutu if she left it. 
so it might be might survive. She was taken to a, a market. Two thousand people were slaughtered there. She survived by hiding under the bodies for three days. And there's a whole sort of story that of the next hundred days of the genocide, how she managed to survive. At the end of it, she was really on death's door. She'd been hiding in a river. She had malaria, bites into her skin. So she she then went back to the village to try and, and, and bury her family. But nobody knew where they were, you know, what had happened to the bodies. So she ended up adopting six babies that she found in the community. But she went back to Kigali and, and worked um, as a prostitute because she had no other income. But what she didn't realize is the main reason is she had PTSD and survivor guilt. So she described it to me that every man that had sex with her, to her, was the perpetrators of the people that killed her family, and she deserved it. And she described herself to me as a dustbin. She said I was like a dustbin. For about eight years, nine years, that's how she lived her life. And this horrible abuse that she suffered at the hands of men under the name of prostitution, she felt she deserved. And it was her fault that her whole family had died. A local NGO start, was starting to give psychological support to some of these women, including Olive. And she said it only took a few sessions. But they, they made her understand that it wasn't her fault, that she shouldn't be feeling this way. She shouldn't be treating herself as, as a dustbin. She shouldn't have such low respect. And that really it's like she wanted to be punished. So every time somebody had sex with her for money, say she felt she was being punished and deserved it. So these small changes meant that she suddenly saw she had to change what she was doing. She moved back to the community where she had been from with these six kids. And she struggled at first because a lot of the perpetrators of the crime were still living there. So she would see people that had been involved in the genocide because a lot of them were released or there's amnesties. They obviously reminded her every day when she walked to the market or took the kids to school. She'd see these faces. So she decided the only way she could move forward was to forgive them. So she would visit them one by one, knock on their doors, and say, I forgive you for what you did. And she started to notice that she would come home and, and things like her roof had been fixed on her house or, or the garden had been dug, and these people were coming and doing things around her home. Then one night there was a knock on her door. It was late at night, very stormy, very dramatic. And she goes, there was this guy there, and he was the guy that was head of the militia that had killed her family and ordered the killings. And he, she was terrified because she knew she was a witness to this. Maybe he wanted to silence her. But he was there to say, I, I hear what you've done. I hear the forgiveness of, of all these other people. I want to take you to where we buried your family. And this was now, I think, 10, 15 years after the genocide. So she was taken to this, this clearing. And the next day the government came and they dug it up and they found 300 bodies in this unmarked grave. And in Olive's own words, it was her forgiveness that meant the whole village was able to lay their ghosts to rest. That's an incredible story of somebody who had gone through hell because of her own psychological trauma, that she'd put herself in that position of seeing herself as valueless. So even though she was, to all of us, we would say, my God, what a terrible thing, crime that had happened to her, but she saw herself as, as guilty of that. And that happens a lot. But again, how one small intervention meant that she could change her whole life. And then she set up a, a small cooperative with some of the other women. And when I met her, you know, one of the things I always do um, as, a, as a writer, photographer, and with, with, with kind of humanitarian work is always ask the communities what they want. Don't go there and say, this is what we want to give you. But actually just say, what is it we can do to help you? And she said, well, you know, we work on this land, but we don't own the land, so we don't get much money. It's very tough. And so I, I went away and, and spoke to some people, and we found a way to raise the money to buy the land. So then I was able to return. We had this group of, of 100 women. And I was able to say, you know, the, the land that you work on every day, the land that you break your back on, that make your hands bleed. I said, that land is now your land. That is what those women deserve. I love the Land for Women project. It, it's the thing I'm, you know, proudest of in my life because it's so simple. It was just a very simple concept that if we give the land to the women, then it does more than just give them a space to, to grow vegetables. It means that they can now get loans. They have, they have status. They get respected in a different way. Um, their children are in a better position. 
because they have something to own at some point. It it does a lot outside of just giving them some some land to grow. But most importantly, it means that we have no control over it. So most cooperatives, the land is owned by organizations and, and NGOs and charities. If you do that, you still therefore are in charge and you have control over it. If you give the land to the women, that for me is truly trusting. And I've had conversations with donors here in the UK who have said those exact words. How can you trust them to do it properly? You know, that is the mindset that people still have. And yet I look at it and I look at somebody like Olive and I know all the women that work with Olive have got similar stories. They have been through hardships, suffering that I can't even start to comprehend. And from that, they've grown a resilience and a desire to better their lives and the lives of their children, their community. So who am I to tell them how to do that? Because they know stuff that I would never understand. You know, you have to give that control to the person. In fact, my exact words, <laughs> which probably seemed really inappropriate, but but actually was was kind of very well taken on board by the women, is when I sort of handed it over to them, I said, it's yours to fuck up now. It's like, if you fuck it up, it's your problem. And everyone's like laughing, going, thank you. Because that that's what it means to actually allow people to empower themselves is when you give them the opportunity to even fail. You know, that's part of the learning process. Mm-hmm. You cannot be there telling people how to do things every day. I mean, it's just, it's a ridiculous situation that, the way that most charities work. You know, a lot of NGOs you see will talk about, we empower women by giving them land. We never say that. Because who am I to empower them? I'm, I'm not there to empower them. My job is to break down the barriers that are stopping them empowering themselves. But again, that all comes from, from, from Olive. And, and she taught me that. She gave me a gift of her story. And we were able to use that to change the lives of now many, many women in Rwanda. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that, about Legacy of War. When did Legacy of War begin? So Legacy of War started out as a photographic project. And actually, I just started it when I went to Afghanistan and stupidly got my legs blown off. You know, in, in, in a lot of journalism, photojournalism, people are interested in conflicts. But they look at conflicts as singularities. They look at them as individual stories. So you look at the war in Syria, you look at the war in Libya, you look at what happened in Rwanda. And these are independent stories. And I started to realize that when I was in these different countries, if I shut my eyes and listened to somebody's story, they were all the same. But they were maybe in different times. So somebody would be talking to me in Cambodia about something that had happened 40, 50 years before. But what they were saying was exactly the same as somebody who had just been telling me in Syria a week before. And I became interested in actually looking at the connections of that. So rather than look at countries, look at themes across countries. You know, psychological trauma is a great example of that. And also it became interesting because one thing that conflict tends to do is make communities, countries very inward looking um, because they feel that it's it's a singularity to them. Nobody else has shared that experience. But it, it gave comfort to people to hear connecting stories. So that's what Legacy War was all about, was about connecting these stories of conflict and seeing actually it's all the same. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether you are... Uh, you know, an American who who lost their husband to the Vietnam War and is still missing in action to somebody that is, um, it's just happened in Bosnia. You know, the the pain is the same. The suffering is the same. In fact, you know, I had a, a message last week from somebody which really moved me and they'd heard me talking about my own injuries um, in Afghanistan, what happened that day. And their husband had died, yeah, 50 years ago in Vietnam. And he'd been blown up and lost his legs and died. And she said, I haven't been able to sleep since then, wondering what he went through. And hearing your story, she goes, brought me so much comfort. So thank you for sharing that story. And that's the power of a story. Sharing my experience meant that somebody, after 50 years of pain, was able to get some comfort from my story. And that's what Legacy was all about, was about sharing stories so that we could all listen to other stories about conflict and, and find those those common themes. Did this begin before you had your own story to tell as part of this? Yeah, I mean, literally that was what I was working on and and I just set up Legacy of War when I went to Afghanistan. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a great irony that, that, you know, to to be heading towards this project and then, yeah, have a really bad day at the office right at the beginning of it and and this sort of big 
uh, disruption. But obviously, you know, what it meant is that my connection to the whole thing was completely different. Yeah. And I, I remember reading something that you said about if you are meeting kids or people that have had their legs blown mm. off by a landmine, then seeing you working, photographing them, living life so fully can inspire them that there is life beyond that. Absolutely. And sitting down and sharing my story with people, it's something that's really, I think, important. And and yeah, that's exactly the whole idea of Legacy of War is that if by sharing stories, we can find comfort in those. I mean, stories have like a magic mojo that I don't really understand. You know, from, from the birth of humankind, we've been painting things on walls. We've been trying to communicate stories and tell stories. Stories are intrinsic to human nature. And so to be able to go and share stories and, and, and people tell theirs and I tell mine, rather than being a journalist who goes and just takes stories, I'm there to share stories. So that was what Legacy of War was about. And then it, it evolved because, as I say, I, I never set out just to be a, a photographer. I wanted to do something. And there's a story about a woman called Khulud who, living in, in, in Syria, had been shot by a sniper in her garden in front of her children, had survived just, I mean, she had about a 1% chance of survival, was taken out into to Lebanon, into a refugee camp there, living in a makeshift tent, but she's paralyzed from the neck down, she's tetraplegic. She was living in a tent that was, was made out of bits of cardboard and, and uh, movie posters ripped down from billboards. No windows, it was, it was really a hellish place to live for anybody, let alone a woman who's, who's paralyzed and stuck in bed. So I met her and her husband, and they were amazing, and I, I photographed them. And this was a few months after I'd returned to work, so about 18 months after I got injured. And it was a big turning point for me because it was the first time that, that I was back fully independently working. And actually nobody had given me a chance to work. None of the magazines, newspapers I ever worked for ever commissioned me again. So I'd had to fund my own work at the beginning. So I came back, and then the story was published, and, and it was a turning point because then people started getting me to work again. So I always felt that I actually owed Khalud for, for giving me my life back because she had trusted me with her story when nobody else thought I could work. She had never questioned it. And then years later, two, three years later, I went back and I was working on another project and I was meeting some of the families I'd met before and one of those families was Khalud. And her husband had called me when he heard I was in Lebanon. I remember the conversation so clearly because he's, he's, it was like, oh, we'll hear you back, love to see you. And I, I just asked, where are you now? And he was like, well, we're in the same place. It was like being punched in the stomach where I just was kind of repeating it. I was like, well, what do you mean, where are you now, though? And he said, where you last saw us. And it was like a, a moment of realization because, you know, arrogantly, stupidly, I thought as a photographer, I told the story. It had got out there. Surely something would have changed. One of the agencies would have seen this. You know, I knew that a lot of the big charities have been even using that image to, to talk about their work. But nobody had actually done anything for her. And my sense of, of failing was just overwhelming. I went to see her and I, you know, I'm terrible. I, I burst into tears at any opportunity. But I walked in, I was like bawling my eyes out, saying, you know, I failed you. Completely let you down. Clue's like a little angel. And she just smiled and she's like, I know we knew you'd come back. And smiled and laughed. And, and they even remembered what my favorite meal had been from the, when I visited two years before. And they cooked me the same meal because they knew I liked it. You know, we sat there and ate and I thought, well, I, all I can do is just try and tell the story again and, and, and do better. So I, I photographed them over the next few days, documented their life. And, and it's hard to explain how a place, you know, we, we talked earlier about suffering and about lockdown and, and restrictions and and really what clued was going through was what i went through when i was in intensive care you know she was lying in a bed staring at the ceiling had never been out of that room could never see the daylight had no connection with anybody else apart from her kids you know she was in a living hell really and the thing as well that she kept saying to me was that she had no dignity because you know she can't go to the toilet it goes into a bag but her kids are in that same room she had no no dignity. Yet it was a place that's always full of love and laughter. Her husband Jamal, there's it like a, it's not really a kitchen; it's like a little bit to the side where you, where you, he cooks. And when we when there, he always says to me, "It's like his greatest fear is that she doesn't love him as much as he loves her." And they are just the most wonderful couple, and he's the most incredibly supportive um, husband. 
So, you know, I actually had a photograph that I gave to them that I'd taken two years before. And this photograph was really identical to what I was photographing two years later, because obviously she hadn't moved. The bed was the same. The room was the same. And I did question about whether I should give them the photograph. I like to give photographs back to the people that I've, I've documented. And I was questioning, should I give this to her? Won't it just remind her that nothing's changed? But I thought, no, I have to. And so I gave it to her. And I said, but when I took this photograph, I didn't take a photograph of a refugee. I did not take a photograph of a disabled woman. Actually, this was a photograph of love. And this was a photograph of a couple who are so in love with each other and represent everything to me that means anything in the world and proves that love is unbreakable. And that photograph to me is the most important photograph I've ever taken. It was also the moment I realized I'm not a war photographer. I don't take photographs of guns, tanks, planes, none of that stuff. You won't see any pictures I've ever taken of anything that really reflects war. I photograph humanity and I photograph love. I photograph people in terrible situations, but what I photograph there and what I find is a grandmother, you know, brushing granddaughter's hair, father on the floor teaching math to his kids, you know, mother like Khalud or a couple like Khalud and Jamal. And that is what I choose to document. But it was also a turning point because I realized it was no longer enough just to take a photograph. And so that's where Legacy of War became the Legacy of War Foundation. And we actually set up as a charity because I said from this day on, I will never, ever leave somebody like Khalud and think I've done my job because I just simply took a photograph. I have to make sure that the lives of the people that I document change because of those images. My work now is is about both. It's, it's, it's telling stories, but then using those stories to create real and substantial change for those communities. And it's about working with those communities and asking what it is that they need to change. And, and just as a final thing on Khalid's story, she's now relocated to, to Holland and she's doing really well there. She has like an electric chair, which means she has a bit of freedom herself. It's still, you know, tough as hell. I would say to people, it's, it's like, this is not a happy ending story in the sense of she will never walk again. She has lost so much, but she has got her dignity that she has some independence. And most importantly for her is she see her kids in school and, and able to, to move forward with, with their life. But the final sort of, well, it's not the final part of her, my story with, with Clude. I mean, she's a dear friend and, and it's funny, like during lockdown, she's been constantly texting me going, are you okay? Are you okay? How are you dealing with it? <laughs> But last year, I had a big exhibition in Geneva, um, which was about the rights of people with disability in conflict. And it was alongside Lake Geneva. And a lot of people from big agencies, big UN agencies came to the opening. And I invited Khalud to come and open the exhibition. She was very nervous. She didn't want to give a speech and, and all the rest of it. But I said, no, you have to come and, and speak because, you know, you represent so many of these stories. And that for me was probably the most important moment for me as a photographer because I hate, I absolutely hate the phrase that gets used to give voice to people. We don't give voices to people. People have voices. We are there to amplify their voices. That's our job is to find ways to make sure that their stories are heard in their own voice. And for me, the ultimate example of that was to have an exhibition where I had photographs of people like Khalud, but it was Khalud herself sat there opening that exhibition and explaining what it was about. I was in tears and, and you know, I sat with, with Hlu, Jamal and one of their kids. And I said, you know, who would have thought, you know, five years ago, six years ago, you were in this tent, you know, being abandoned by so many organizations. And here you are in Geneva addressing them. And so, yeah, that, that's where we're at now. Legacy of War charity. We're trying to help communities to rebuild, but it's always about working with them about what they want and not this is what we think you need. There's a great story about that, actually. My friend Leslie is a filmmaker, Canadian filmmaker, and she was doing a project in Afghanistan. She was with a, a, a charity that had decided to put um, wells in lots of villages and communities, which, you know, is it's in many ways a great idea. But it wasn't in conjunction with talking to those communities about what they wanted. It was like, obviously, they need wells. You know, they need water because they have to walk to the rivers and all the rest of it. So we know best. So we're going to put these wells in. So they put these wells in and Leslie was sent back to film it, to, you know, promote it and all the rest of it. And she found that it had been blown up and this well had been destroyed by, a, by explosives. So, of course, everybody's immediate assumption was, oh, you know, the Taliban always putting people back in time. They won't allow any progress and we're sick of this. 
why won't they let communities flourish, blah, blah, blah. And Leslie, you know, knowing the country well and the people well, thought there was something there was something more going on and she wasn't sure. But so she spent time there chatting to the women. She found out it was the women had done it. The women had blown up the well because the way that it's structured there, they, they don't have community. They don't go out and hang out with the other women apart from when they walked the river to collect water. That was their one moment when they got away from the husbands, got away from the men, were able to be together and they would talk and chat and share stories. And that was their favorite time of the day. So because this organization had come and put a well in, now they couldn't do that. So it was the women had blown up this well to give them what they wanted back. And that, for me, is a perfect example of people going in thinking they're doing a good thing but not working with the community to find an answer that they want. So all our projects as a charity are beneficiary-led. So the projects are designed by the beneficiaries, and they're all localized. So we don't have Western staff. We don't have international staff going and running these projects. We help the communities to run them themselves, help it set it up, and then within a few years they become of self self running that's amazing and it's so true i mean i've seen it time and time again as well that in the camps for example often when we have people donating stuff it's more about people feeling good about donating than it is really thinking about Mm. what is needed and often what we think is needed in the camp is very different from the reality wi-fi is one of those examples that initially it's not the first thing that many people think of as a need in Mm -hmm. a refugee camp you think basic you know food water but actually the cues for the phones and the requests to borrow my phone were more than requests for food and water and not just in calais but then also when people were arriving on les that was the first thing that they wanted to do let their family members know that they were safe exactly as you say listening brought us to a project that actually was not something that we ever thought that we would do and has now grown beyond what we ever expected absolutely and you know it's the same for me when I was when I was injured and I was in hospital you know I was told I'd never walk again probably never live independently and all those things and there was sort of two groups of people and one group would, would be people that would come and be sort of sympathetic and, and be like, oh, we'll make sure you're looked after and you don't have to work and we'll, we'll find a you know place for you to live where you can be looked after and all the rest of it. And then the other group of people would come and say, right, this is shit. How are we going to get you working again? How are we going to figure this one out? And let's find a solution. And that was what I wanted. You know, I didn't want to be uh, treated as somebody that was now irrelevant to society that just needed to be looked after. I wanted to find a way to be relevant and to be able to work and do things. And that's what I find in the communities that we work with. And so I want to give people the same opportunity that I had, which is simply to be able to to rebuild your life and, and continue. And, you know, I, I think the greatest resource that's not used by most charities is the beneficiaries themselves. You know, most charities don't really get the best out of the beneficiaries because they don't work with them. And so, you know, you know it, you go to refugee camps and there'll be like doctors, lawyers, teachers, et cetera, all sitting there, not doing anything. You're like, well, why are we not getting these people to support their own communities, which is what they want to do. And, and yet we're bringing over international staff to do the jobs for them. Those times hopefully are starting to change. Mm. I hope so anyway, because yeah, absolutely needs to. I mean, one of the big things as well that we're starting to to work on as an organization is campaigning in the, in the hope of, of, you know, one day the end of, of war. It's another thing that pisses me off is that most charities working in conflict zones don't do more to campaign against conflict. Mm. You know, we have, we have a campaign that I came up with a very simple logo, which is fuck your wars. That came out of when I was in Mosul a few years ago and Mosul was the worst violence I ever saw. You know, I, I was in a, ta- a city which was being destroyed and children losing limbs and 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 worse i've never seen anything like it it was it was just relentless it was just it was too much i came back from there in a really dark place that i just the the kind of sometimes you're so overwhelmed by something i I was very aware that no photograph could stop what was happening and it didn't really make any difference what i was doing because yeah if i'm photographing people i knew that the next day children were still going to die so why take the photograph of somebody suffering if it's not going to help? I was paralyzed by that and not taking any photographs, trying to be helpful where I could be, you know, in the hospital. I know the staff there really well. And, and so I was just doing things like sitting with, with some of the injured kids and eating with them and just trying to, you know, give them some support on that side. But I wasn't taking photographs. And it actually, it was a mother of this young boy, Dawood, and Dawood had lost his, his, his legs and his arm. And it was his mother said to me, why are you not photographing anyone? And I, explained exactly what I've just said. 
that I just think it's pointless. You know, I feel impotent, really, having a camera when, when there's this level of destruction around. And she looked at me and she said, when a child is injured like this, the whole world should see it. And it was like a kind of slap in the face of, of basically her saying, just get on with your job, do your thing. So, you know, I photographed Dawood and, and actually there was a moment where he, he, he put his fingers up in a kind of V for victory sign. And he's the cheekiest little kid. I mean, he's really, yeah, very funny kid. And, and his mum was saying to me about how she didn't realise how brave he was until he got injured because he was basically a, a shepherd. You know, he was a young kid, but he was out tending the sheep and he stepped on a landmine or an IED and lost both his legs. And nobody could go to him because the risk of other devices being there. Although his mother wasn't there, she was on her way there. And she said that everyone told me that he kept trying to stand up and his legs were obviously mangled and he kept trying to stand up. And he didn't cry and his legs just kept giving way on him or what was left of his legs. And then finally they got him out, they put him on the back of a tractor to take him to hospital and his mum was crying and, and she was like, and he told me he stopped crying, making it worse. And, you know, and these are the stories that just are there all the time. And that's where I was just, I came back and I was just like, fuck your wars, just fuck you all, really, was the only thing in my mind. How, how are we spending, you know, bombing these countries, 20 grand a bomb? You know, the average, the average GU-19, like a guided bomb that we drop every day is like worth 20 grand. We just drop them without even thinking every day. And, you know, people still say to me, but what's this got to do with us? What's this got to do with us? And, and I'm like, we're, we're bombing those countries. We're there. We're doing this. Nobody even seems to, to bat an eyelid to it anymore because, you know, thankfully we're not having casualties. We don't have troops on the ground, but that somehow makes people step away from it. And the reality is that the weapons that come from, from the UK, you know, I mean, we're the second biggest exporter of weapons in the world. The, the funding that goes into to these operations is in billions, trillions. And yet we don't even really have the conversation about it anymore in this country. It's com something completely kind of forgotten about. Nobody really cares about it anymore. When I see a child like Dawood, and that was, you know, in a war that we are part of, and I see children injured by bombs that we have dropped, how can we say we have nothing to do with that? How can we say we're not responsible? And that deeply, deeply hurts me. And the more that we use drones and remote weapons, the more we become distanced from the violence that we're perpetrating on people. And we have to question that why at this point in society, in the world, we still think it's okay to settle arguments, to support our trade deals, to make sure our access to oils and other resources is settled by ripping other people's bodies apart in the most violent manner you can imagine and bearing in mind that most modern conflicts 90% of the casualties are civilians the fact that we can do that without having a conversation about it that's why the, the, the whole kind of fuck your wars thing came about me it's a, it's a sort of silly statement in a way it's a kind of you know punky sort of in your face statement but I mean it it's like fuck you fuck you that think this is okay but also, fuck everybody that feels it's not even important to talk about. Yeah, get me one of those t-shirts yes. ASAP. <laughs> well, Giles, I mean, I could listen to you for hours. There's so much of what you said that just resonates with me in such a big way. Thank you so much for sharing that today. Really, I think you're amazing. Oh, well, thank you. And thank you for coming down here. And, and yeah. No, it's a really pleasure. Cool. Amazing. I'm still taking in so many of Giles's words and stories. I'd love to know what resonated with you and what you'd like to hear more of from him. To let me know, send me a direct message on Instagram at the Worldwide Tribe. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and family, rate it and leave a review. It helps more people to find this podcast and it helps me to keep bringing you these stories. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we will become and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe.
big thanks to Alexander Wells for composing our original music and mixing this episode.